Let's pray. Our Holy Father and God, you are indeed beautiful in your holiness and your goodness to mankind. You have stretched out a saving arm, and we are so very grateful. And now we ask, Holy Father, please open our eyes, our lips, to praise you and our hearts to receive your word. We pray in Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it's great to see all of you this morning. We're going to continue uh, with our look at the book of 1 Peter. And in your uh, bulletin, there's a, a pass, the passage we're going to read right now. Or if you have your Bible with you, you're welcome to open that to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read uh, for the last time this, this section. Uh, and then next week, we'll finish up the, the first chapter and part of chapter 2. Uh, before Advent, and then we'll have something else for the four weeks of Advent. But uh, if you have your scriptures, open them to First Peter chapter 1, and we'll start reading at verse 13. Now hear God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, be also holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. You know, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about this passage. We talked, first of all, about hope. And I uh, explained to you that hope in the scripture is not wishful thinking. It's not just hoping for something that may or may not occur. But hope in the scripture is seen as a certainty, as something that is going to happen, albeit it's just in the future. And so the scripture tells us to set our hope fully on Christ, knowing that he has been indeed died for us, that he has indeed been raised from the dead, and that he will come again. These are the future, the past is is the cross and the resurrection, but the future hope that we have is that Christ lives among us now and will be coming again someday. So we, as we talked about, we are living in these last days, and it's very important that we not see hope as wishful thinking. You can hope to win the lottery, and that's wishful thinking. But when you put your hope in Jesus, you're simply stretching your faith. The writer of Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. So you're simply stretching your faith out into the future and laying hold of something that is absolutely certain and bringing that certainty back into your presence so that you can live. And so we looked at hope, and then we looked uh, the last time uh, we were together before uh, Dr. Uh, Messer was here last week, we looked at holiness. There's a lot of misunderstanding about holiness. A lot of people will say, well, holiness is all about your behavior. 
And I told you that I don't think holiness is all about your behavior. It certainly influences your behavior. But holiness is more about your identity. Who are you? And Peter goes to links to say, you are children of God. You belong to Him. You have been adopted into His family. Therefore, because of that, now you act and conduct yourself in a certain way. I argued the case, and I hope I made it well enough, that it's not about what you don't do. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go out with girls that do. You know, that kind of thing. Christians have been notorious for defining themselves by all these lifestyle behaviors that supposedly make them holy. And the truth of the matter is, we're already holy. You're not going to get any more holiness than you've been given. Now, you can grow in that holiness. You can increase in your holiness before God. That is something we very clearly teach in our catechisms and things like that. But you're, you're standing in your status before God as one of His holy children. It's no different than one of us looking at our children and saying, well, you're not really my child until you act appropriately. Well, good luck with that. None of us would have been our children. We would have all been a disinherited. So we can't base holiness merely on behavior. Holiness is who you are as a child of God, and then it influences your behavior. And if you get those backwards, uh, I argued that you lose, you really lose the gospel. Is it possible then to presume on God's grace? The answer is yes. You can presume on God's grace. And there are many warnings against that. And they are legitimate warnings just because we're Calvinists and we believe God predestines and all that good doctrinal stuff. In no way does that exonerate us from living and walking before God in obedience and holiness. We can never presume on His grace. To presume on His grace, I would argue, is you don't understand His grace. Okay? So uh, we don't want to presume on, on His grace when we talk about holiness. And finally, we're going to talk about this morning the high cost of redemption. This is the final part of this verses 17 through 21 that we just read. The high cost of redemption. You see, both hope, listen carefully, both hope and holiness need to have some foundation. They're not just out there floating in the atmosphere and we're supposed to reach up and grab them and bring them down into our present and try to be the best we can, do the best we can. You know, Nike theology, just do it. That is terrible, terrible theology. That stuff's not just out there in the atmosphere. It is part of our very new spiritual DNA. It's part of who we are now as people. Hope and holiness. But what is the ground for those? And I think Peter makes... The case that the ground for those is nothing less, listen, nothing less than the very cost of His own Son. And when that goes down into the inner part of your being, when that becomes part of the the warp and woof of your life, the fabric of your life, that Jesus died for me, that He lived a perfect life for me, that He is indeed my Savior, it will change your behaviors. And Christianity will no longer become this struggle. Oh, I'm, I'm just, I hate it. It's just a burden and all that. No, it'll be hard. It's not going to be easy. Christianity's not easy. But there is something in, in view that is not hard. And that is embracing the Lord Jesus. He said, come to me, those of you that are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's not hard. 
But if you're not in the yoke with Christ, then it becomes exceedingly difficult. And I think that's where a lot of us struggle. I know it's my struggle. When I find myself hating my Christianity, it's because I'm trying to do it on my own. And Peter and Paul and the other apostles, and I would say Jesus himself, constantly appeal back to this foundational principle of Christ for us, Christ as us. Redemption. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. Very quickly, here's your outline. A proposition. Secondly, a problem. And thirdly, a payment. So first, a proposition. Secondly, a problem. And finally, a payment. That's the basic outline. First of all, the proposition. We see this in verse 17. Look at what he says. If you call God Father, since, going back to verse 17, Three in the earlier part that we didn't read, since you've been born again, since he judges impartially. You see, he's, he's using what we call a condition of fact or a conditional statement. If, then. If you're a child, then you do this. And the Apostle Paul used this kind of uh, tactic. Jesus himself used uh, conditional statements over and over again. He, he said, give me a penny. And they gave him a penny. And he said, if, whose picture is this? Well, this picture is Caesar. Well, if it's his picture, give him back what belongs to him. If, then. Do you see it? And so there's this condition here, this proposition he makes. If you call God your Father, and he's speaking to all of us, if we have the temerity and the boldness to say, no, I'm a child of God, I belong to Jesus, I'm I'm adopted into his family. If that's true, then you do these following things. As children, conduct yourselves this way. And he's not talking about dietary things. He's not talking about whether you smoke and drink. I mean, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you shouldn't smoke and drink. But he's not talking about just behavioral and lifestyle things. He's not talking about whether or not you should eat pork. He's talking about whether or not the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit singular, of the Spirit is actually in your life and actually growing. Are you more loving? Are you more gracious? Are you more spacious? Are there things happening inside of you? Are you more aware of your sin? You see, as we grow in our faith, we might think we're sinning less and less, but the reality is we're just... We're just going in a certain trajectory and God, if, he, if, he's, if He's at all true, and I believe He is, as you get better in your behavior, He's going to show you more idolatry, not less. You're not going to be able to get to some point and pat yourself on the mouth. Oh, look how good I'm doing. I'm really, I've really got this Christian thing down. You know, I've been a Christian a long time now and, and I'm, finding, I'm finding more and more places where I fail. More and po- more places that are deep, deeper hidden in my heart that need uprooting and need attention. There's things down inside of us that God means to undo. And so we can't ever say to ourselves, I'm getting better and better and better, although you may actually be getting better. But you may actually be becoming more broken, more repentant, more sensitive to to the work and the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life, more tender towards the people around you, more quick to forgive, more quick to love, not just the people that are nice to you, but the people that are actually bad to you. Imagine what would happen. Imagine what would happen to the church, and I'm talking about the true church of Jesus. What would happen if we actually did what Jesus told us, to love our enemies? What would happen? 
a lot of the political strife in our country would disappear. You can disagree with somebody, but what is happening, folks, is we begin to hate them. We hate our president. We hate our leaders. We hate the other party. We despise them. We call them names. We use invectives that are disturbing not only to our humanity, but I can assure you that they're very, very disturbing to God. To see His people speaking this way about other people, other human beings created in His image, regardless of what their creed or color or background or whatever, now, unless they're Presbyterians, you know, they've probably got problems, but... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to lighten it a little bit, folks. Of course, we are to look across and see everybody as created in the image of God and act appropriately. And this is what he's talking about. As children, conduct yourselves with fear and be constant in this. In other words, you have to understand that God is an impartial judge. In other words, he's not going to treat you differently than he treats everybody else in this world. He's not going to hold you to a higher standard, and he's not going to hold you to a lower standard. There is a standard for all humanity, and we've all broken, all have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul said in Romans chapter 3. So therefore, because that's true, we all are on the same footing. We have all broken God's law, and he's an impartial judge. So judgment is going to come upon us just like it is anyone else. The only difference, the only difference, folks, is who is your lawyer? Who is your advocate? Who is going to stand in the dock with you uh, against that judgment day? And humanity is all going to be standing in the dock, including us. We're all going to be there. And somebody's going to argue your case. It's either going to be you arguing your case. Look at how good I am. Look how I've kept the Ten Commandments. I have followed the golden rule. I'm a pretty good person. I give lots of money to the church more than they do. And you point over to whoever you think they are. And, you know, I do this and I do that. And you're going to defend yourself or you're going to simply stand in the dock and say, Lord, have mercy. And now hear my lawyer. And your lawyer makes the case. Your advocate Jesus makes the case for you. It's remarkable, folks. A wonderful thing. It should change the shape of how we see everything around us, particularly people. If that's true, then we are to conduct ourselves with fear. He's not talking about trembling terror. He's talking about reverential respect, knowing that God is an impartial judge, that all humanity stands under this judgment. Listen to what J.I. Packer said. I love Packer. Many of you do. Dr. Packer says this, justification or being in a right relationship with God, listen carefully, because this this is quintessential uh, J.I. Packer. Justification, having a right relationship, is the primary blessing of the gospel because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt, listen folks, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless miserable, and in our lucid moments, the moments when we're kind of clear-headed, uh, we're afraid because we know we're, we're, we have this sin problem. We're going to talk about it in a minute. We need forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this, the gospel before, offers it to us. But this, now listen, This is not to say 
that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Now, we would think that, right? We'd say, oh boy, being made right with God so that our guilt is taken away and, and we're, we're no longer in the dock, we're no longer found guilty, that that would be the greatest blessing. Packer says, no, that's just the beginning. But it is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Here it is. Adoption, calling God Father, is higher. It is higher because of the richer relationship that it involves. Justification, now we're getting into some theology. I understand this may be confusing. Justification is a forensic idea. It's a courtroom idea. But adoption is a family idea. So justification is the courtroom. Adoption is the family idea. And this is exactly what the Apostle Peter is pointing us to. Adoption was conceived in terms, listen, of love. In other words, let me just jump ahead because we don't have all the time to, to do this. You're in the dock. You're guilty of sin. And God comes in, your, your, your lawyer, Jesus, your advocate stands before God and says, remove the guilt. And then he does the astonishing, almost incomprehensible thing that you can't even imagine in the wildest dreams. He said, Father, take away their sin and now give them what they deserve. Give them what they deserve. And if you're a child, you understand what you deserve. If you're a child, you understand that you don't deserve hell and death and the grave. What do you deserve? Children of God, what do you deserve? The resurrection. A glorified body, a new heavens and a new earth. That's what you deserve. That's what He came to pay for. That's what He came to die for. Not simply to remove your sin from you, as great as that is, but to embrace you, take you into His family, make you His own, clothe you with robes of righteousness so that you have an inheritance. The Apostle Peter already talked about this. An inheritance that cannot be taken away, that will not fade. Adoption is the great blessing. It's we are new creatures in Christ. Do we still sin? Yes, indeed. We, we fail miserably. I, I, I don't even know what to say about that. But, but at the same time and in the same relationship, it's beyond thinking, folks. But what we, we really are destined for is glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. This is what the Apostle Paul said. In adoption, listen, let me finish this with Packer. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as children and heirs. Can you hear Peter here? Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. It's great to be right with God the judge. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Can you imagine that? Now, if I had said that, you probably should be suspicious. But because Packer says it, you can take it to the bank. Therefore, look, folks, therefore, the ground, the foundation of our loving and forgiving one another is the love and forgiveness that He gave us. Forgive, Jesus said, even as you have been forgiven. In other words, no strings attached. 
No conditions on forgiveness. Well, I'll forgive you as long as you feel bad about it. And, you know, you would go through the, all the things what that would do for our marriages. Think what it would do for our families. Think what it would do for our country. Think what it would do for this little church. If we all actually forgave each other the way we've been forgiven. If we loved each other the way we've been loved. If we were spacious and gracious to one another in our marriages the way that God is with us. I have never yet gone to God and asked Him to forgive me where He said, well, now you just wait a minute. There's some things we need to get straight before I give you forgiveness. Anytime I've gone to God, forgiveness is instant. And then He says, now we have some things to talk about. (laughs) Right? Is that your experience? If it's not your experience, you really do need to come and talk to us because you may be living far below what God has for you and suffering needlessly. And of course the question pops up, wow, if he's that gracious, then, then, you know, I can do anything I want, right? And the fact of the matter is, folks, yes, you can. You can do anything you want. You want to go sin? Go ahead. What do you want to do? I have yet to meet a genuine, thoroughgoing Christian who has been touched by the Holy Spirit, who knows the grace of God, who ever answers me and says, well, I want to serve Him. I want to live for Him. I want to give my life to Him. And then I say, well, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, go do it. Go do it. Instead of staying over here in this, in this misery of, well, you know, maybe I'll... May, do you want fear to be the whip that is driving you to obedience? Or do you want His love and His fatherly care to be driving you to obedience? Do you want His fear, fear in terms of awe and worship? What we just did a moment ago with lifting our hearts up to God and our, our hands and our minds to Him and thanking Him in those beautiful words of the songs, thanking Him for all He has done for us. You see, that is a great whip. That's a great motive. That's a great thing to get you moving. But if you're terrified that if you misstep, He's going to crush you to the ground, then you never are understanding His fatherly love. Unless a parent is abusive with their children, they will indeed discipline them. But they will never crush them to the ground. They will lovingly embrace and discipline them. And that's all God ever does with us. So what's the problem? We have this problem of inherited sin. And I'm not going to get into all of the theological stuff about how sin is transferred because I've read it all and I know some of you may have read it all in the systematic theologies and all of that of how sin is transferred. The best theologians say we just don't really know. We don't know how sin is transferred whether it's federal headship or it's something else. I mean, we don't know what... We do know that, that sin is transferred somehow from generation to generation and we all stand under this judgment and, and no one has ever come up with a completely crisp, concise answer to how that happens. It's a mystery. It's the mystery of iniquity. The fact of the matter is we all sin and we all sin before we know Jesus Christ willingly, happily, joyfully. We're just running on our way, sinning up a storm. And nothing will impede you or stop you unless He gets in the way. And in fact, He does. But the problem has always been sin. Look at verse, uh, uh, the next verse there. He talks about the problem being our futile ways. This word futile means empty or useless or meaningless. These futile ways that are inherited from uh, our forefathers. What are those? Those are the ways of sin. Actually, 
Specifically, the ways of idolatry. Idolatry. Now, idolatry, folks, is not simply uh, looking for a little statue to worship. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not looking at that kind of idolatry. He's talking about the idolatries that exist down inside of our hearts. And idolatry, again, let me remind you, is not putting something ahead of God. Very few people will do that. Uh, Hardly any of us, at least us in this room, will actually put money ahead of God or put a relationship ahead of God. We don't do that. But Christians are warned against idolatry. So what does it mean? What does it mean? And I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, is very helpful here. He says idolatry is anything, listen, anything that occupies the place that God should occupy alone. In other words, an idol is anything that you bring into the relationship that stands alongside. When, when Moses said, you shall have no other gods before me, he wasn't, the Hebrew word doesn't necessarily mean by rank or order. He, the Hebrew word actually means to bring it into my presence. You see, that, and they lived in a polytheistic world where there were lots of gods, so it was normal to walk into a sanctuary or into a, a, a temple and see many, many gods in there. And so he's warning them, don't bring another one in front of me. I want to be in that room by myself. I alone sit on the throne. That ark is my footstool. There are my feet. And you come and you worship at my feet. But I don't want any gods before me. I don't want any other gods in my presence. Now, of course, he's talking about rank and order. But before that, he's talking about in his presence. Don't bring them into the camp. Don't bring them into your tent. Don't bring them into your home. And that's where we get into trouble, folks, because we, can, we bring... There is no end to the amount of things that Christians bring into their relationship with God. Right? Yes or no? No? Yes? We bring multitudes. Our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters are more honest than we are as Protestants because they acknowledge, you know, we need these things. But we're dishonest in Protestantism. We say, oh, we believe in grace, we believe in grace, but miss a prayer time or miss church one or two Sundays uh, for whatever reason, and they better be good ones. Uh, Miss, you guys are really asleep today. Okay, never mind. I mean, think of the behavioral things that we do every day that we qualify and add to Jesus. Jesus plus something equals this over here. And I'm telling you, folks, that is death to the relationship. Those of you that are married, don't you want the other person to love and respect you for who you are? Not merely your behavior? Don't you love your children that way? I mean, I saw Sarah walking back there with little Evelyn. I mean, that child can do nothing but make a mess. I have, I have, grand, I have a grandchild, and she does nothing but make a mess, and she's already three years old. And they still, they, they have nothing to commend them to us. We have to love them for who they are, not what they do, right? If we don't do that, we lose the gospel because that's how God's loving us. He's loving us because of who we are. We've been adopted. We're His children, not what we do. So we can't, we've got to look for these things. What is making you angry? Anger is a great diagnostic. Dr. Keller talks about this in his books, uh, that anger is a great diagnostic. What makes you angry? 
What makes you resentful? What makes you bitter? What makes you touchy? Well, you know, that person disrespected me or that person slighted me or my husband didn't acknowledge this or that or the other thing. My wife didn't do this or that or the other. We start adding these things into our lives as qualifications for everything. And before too long, it seeps into our relationship with God. And before too long, we're living before Him by works and not by faith. And it happens to Protestants as well as anyone else. It happens to Protestants as quickly as it does anybody else in the world. That you find your standing before God as His grace plus something else. Grace is not over against anything else. Grace is its whole thing. All the other things flow out of that. They'll, ne- they'll never get you uh, back. Uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Uh, and don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But my story is that I left the Lord. I turned my back on Jesus for ten, year, ten long years shook my fist in his face and said, I served you and you didn't give me what I deserved and therefore I'm going to show you. And I went out and sinned it up. That's my story. Um, What do you think brought me back? The whip or the embrace? Whatever brings you back, whatever gets you back to God, really, back into his arms, it is, his, is, it, is, it, is Him crushing you to the ground, Him condemning you, or is it in His welcome back? And I would say it's always His love and His grace that brings us back no matter how far we go and no matter how much we shake our fist. Have any of you parents ever had uh, your kids shake your fist? Of course they do. Mine did. Got one of them over here. Don't do it in church, Dan. And shake their fist at us. And what do we do? You know, I don't know, folks, if you're, a, if you're a good parent, you don't slap their fist out of your face and, and condemn them to the ground. You, you know, if they're, if they're little, you grab them, and what do you do? You squeeze them till, till they can't shake their fist anymore. And if they're a teenager and they're bigger than you, I'd say take the chance. That'll bring them back. But beating them up with condemnation and the law and you've got to do this, and you know, that's not going to get you anywhere. Love, God's love for us, the ransom, the ransom, the word means uh, to, to pay a price. In the Greco-Roman world, folks, the, the uh, idea of what's called manumission was real. In other words, a slave could work for their master, and at some point in the future, they slave could pay for his freedom. Are you following me? Now, this was not practiced in the South in the United States. That's why the, the sin of, of slavery in the United States is of a completely different kind. It has no excuse, and it's condemned by the Bible. But this other kind of bondage in the Scriptures that Paul and Peter are and and the other apostles and Jesus himself are expressing, was one in which the person worked for someone for a time and then could buy their freedom back. That's what manumission is. But Peter, I mean, this guy was a fisherman, but he knew how to use language. He uses the same word, but he uses it in the passive tense, which means, that, or the passive mood, excuse me, what he's saying is, you don't buy your freedom, it's God himself that pays for your freedom. 
And the debt that you owe, guess who, guess who holds the mortgage to your life? It's God himself. You see, we owe him the debt. And rather than just say, think about this for a minute, folks. Rather than just come to people and say, I'll erase the debt, no problem. Go, be free. Which would be great, right? If he'd just come to us and say, be free, go free, be free. That would be very nice. But he does so much more. He says to us, no, you're in debt to me. I will pay the debt. I will pay the debt to myself. And the price that I will pay is my son. Now, I have two sons myself, and I wouldn't give one of my sons for any of you. I'm just being honest. If somebody said there's a nuclear bomb planted under El Paso, and all of El Paso is going to blow up unless you kill your son Daniel, I would say, goodbye El Paso. That's us. God does the unthinkable, the unbelievable, the incredible. He says, no, you are worth this. And he agrees and he will come for you. He will come and die for you. And together we will ransom your soul and we'll give you the Holy Spirit so that you can live forever with us. Now, folks, that deserves an amen. Come on, think about this. Jonathan Edwards says Christ is both the buyer and the price. He's both the buyer and the price. If that's not the gospel, folks, I don't know what is. If that's not something that will absolutely change your heart and make you a lover of God, a follower of God, someone who is deeply impressed in your spirit by who God is for you, nothing will. There's nothing out. There's no other motive out there. This is it. And we lay hold of that by faith. Christ is both the buyer and the price. How do you not grow weary then? How do you not grow weary of the Christian life? And, and I, I would say it's not, it's not that hard. And that is to keep your eyes and your heart and your faith fixed on the payment. On the payment. Look at verses 19 through 21. We have been ransomed not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in the last days through Him. Listen to this. Through Him, you're believers. It's not your own power. You're actually born again through Him. His power, His grace. Through Him, you're believers in God who raised Him from the dead gave Him glory so that your faith, look at it, folks, your faith and your hope are in God. These are contrasted over to the meaningless and the futile that we just saw a few minutes ago. Your life doesn't have, if, you, if you're ever tempted to say, my life is meaningless, my life is futile, there's just nothing to my life, what am I living for, what am I, you know, there's nothing out there in the, in the world that you can live for that will hold you up and float your boat. But if you live for Jesus, he's big enough to float your boat. The glory of God is substantial, folks. It can actually change who you are. But we think the glory of God is just some sparkly something or other. No, it's Jesus himself. And he's promised to live in us and abide with us forever through the power of his Holy Spirit. 
The payment, folks, the payment. When you look up here and, and we have a beautiful brass cross that we've had for many years, donated to this church by Ed and Lorraine Brodka many years ago when we first started out. And when I look at that, no matter what kind of cross it is, whether it's a wooden cross or whether it has a crucifix on it or not, whenever you look at the symbol of our faith, folks, and you see that, it's there to remind you that you were ransomed, that you were bought and paid for, and that Christ was both the buyer and the price. And that, and I would argue that and that alone, can change who you are and how you live and how you look at your family and how you look at the people around you in the church and how you look at Democrats and Republicans and political parties and, and, the, and the, the whole world in general. It, just, it goes from the, from the, the nucleus up into the, atmosphere, into the uh, astrological or astronomical. Ast- did I say astrological? I'm going to get it. Okay, I'm going to get uh, excommunicated for, for that. <laughs> Bishop Orgy, you, you, you protect me, right? Dr. Felix Orgy is here today. It's so good to see you, my brother. The bishop of uh, he said, all of the Western, all the Western United States here today. You finally found the Presbyterians, right? <laughs> it's good to see you, my brother. Let me leave you with this. Dr. John Stott says this. And, and just let this soak in, folks, and, and, and charge your heart. On the cross... On the cross, Dr. Stott, on the cross, God satisfied both his love and justice. But in exacting the penalty for sin, he paid it himself. Opening the way of welcome to home, welcome home to us, to himself, without either condoning our sin or compromising His justice. There is nothing like this in any other religion or ideology, Dr. Stott. Others place the initiative in our hands. They assure us that we can make the grade. Every other religion is in the end a religion of human merit and human initiative. You see that? If you trust Jesus, put your trust in Him, will you do it? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Will you do that? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy that endures forever. Uh, Truly, there is no one like you in the heavens above or the earth beneath you. You saw fit out of your great love and compassion for us in our, in our sin and our weakness. You saw it fit to reach out to us and grant us uh, your grace and your mercy in Jesus. Please, Father, help us, save us, have mercy on us, and grant us your grace um, and truth, we pray.